Jonathan Edwards is one of the greatest thinkers and writers that this country has ever seen. The Northampton Revival of 1734, which turned a, a city and all of its surrounding communities completely upside down. It began in his church's pulpit as he preached a series of sermons on justification by faith alone. In fact, one of those sermons is probably the most famous sermon ever written. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And yet, 21 years of faithful ministry in that church ended with Jonathan Edwards being fired, with only 10% of the church voting to keep him. And can you guess what the controversy was over? Communion. Communion. His grandfather had pastored the church before him for 60 years, and his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, believed that the Lord's Supper could be given to people who made no profession of faith and to people who showed no evidence of true faith, and Edwards completely disagreed. And he wrote this to a friend in Scotland in 1749. A very great difficulty has arisen between me and my people relating to qualifications for communion at the Lord's table. My honored grandfather Stoddard, my predecessor in the ministry over this church, strenuously maintained the Lord's Supper to be a converting ordinance and urged all to come who were not of scandalous life, though they knew themselves to be unconverted. I formerly conform to this practice, but I have had difficulties with respect to it, which have been long increasing, till I dared no longer in the former way, which has occasioned great uneasiness among my people, and has filled all the country with noise, which has obliged me to write something on the subject which is now in the press. I know not, but this affair will issue in a separation between me and my people. I desire your prayers that God would guide me in every step in this affair. Well, in the same way that it exposed division at Northampton, the Lord's Supper exposed division at Corinth. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about in our text today. As we have recently learned, communion is supposed to bring us together as churches. Communion is supposed to bring us together as we fellowship with Christ and we fellowship with one another. But in Corinth, it was doing the opposite. In Corinth, it was actually pushing them apart. And so Paul, he has some razor sharp words for that church before he calls them to remember what the Lord's Supper is all about, which will be the subject of this morning's sermon. I've seen factions in church, and I hope that this church is never divided to the scale that so many churches have been divided before us. 
And I pray that God would use passages like the one we're looking at today and that he would use messages like this to guard us and to keep us in the months and years and decades to come. So will you please bow your heads with me? Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, send your Holy Spirit now and fill our minds with truth. Fill our hearts with love for you and for one another. And we ask that your spirit would keep us as we are, one in you. That we would be one as you and the Son and the Spirit are one. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 901. I want to publicly thank Greg Baltzer for preaching last week. I've heard it was one of your best sermons, and I look forward still to listening to it. Uh, for those of you who don't know, in just a, a few more weeks, I'm going to be having back surgery, which I am excited about, so that I'll be able to, among other things, stand up while I'm preaching. Although many of you have told me you don't know that I'm sitting down while I'm up here. You just think I've gotten shorter, I guess. <laughs> I've talked to many, and, and nobody knows that I'm actually sitting down, but I've got a stool up here that, that I've been sitting on the past few weeks, so... Um, some guys have stepped up for the few weeks that I will be absent, so looking forward to hearing from Brett Wagner and Jeff Cassinelli and then Merv Campbell. David mentioned this. The sermon text is posted in your bulletin as chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, because I had originally planned on getting through to the end of the chapter, but that is not going to happen, not unless you want to sit where you are for the next several hours. So my plan is to get through verse 26 today and to do that under the following four headings. So here are our four headings this morning. Number one, a severe judgment. Number two, the problem revealed. Number three, the problem illustrated. And then number four, the problem addressed. So that's how I'm seeing this text today. There is a severe judgment, and then the problem is revealed, and then the problem is illustrated, and then finally the problem will be addressed. So let's start with number one, this severe judgment from Paul. Let's start with this sharp critique in verse 17. But in the following instructions, Paul writes, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. This is very different if you look from what Paul said back up in verse 2 of this chapter. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And then he went on in the first part of this chapter. And while he had instruction... They had his overall approval all the way through verse 16. But then verse 17 begins with the word but. And he's turning now from commendation to 
really a scathing criticism. In the following instructions, and the word translated instructions means a firm directive. So some firm directives are coming up. Or a command. He's going to get to those in verse 28 and verse 31 and verse 33, which we'll hear next week, God willing. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. That means I do not approve. Why? Why not? And here is the substance of his critique. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Those are hard words. Instead of being better when they came together, Paul is telling them that you are actually worse when you come together. Listen to how the NIV translates this verse. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine that? I mean, when they come together, it should be better, not worse. When we come together, it should be for the better and not worse. Their meetings should do more good than harm. Just like our meetings should do more good than harm. But when they came together, it was for the worse. When, when they came together, their meetings actually did more harm than good. So this phrase, come together, it's used five times in the chapter that is actually the translation of one single Greek word that means to assemble for a purpose. When you come together, when you assemble for a purpose. And so that is what is especially tragic here. Because this isn't just any old meeting. This isn't just any old assembly. They are assembling for a purpose. And the purpose of them assembling is the same purpose for us assembling every week, and that is to worship God and to fellowship with each other. That was the purpose. They were coming together every week to worship God and to fellowship with one another. And Paul is saying, that's not happening. You're not worshiping God the way you should. You are not fellowshipping with one another as you should. You should be at your best on Sunday. We should be as Christians at our best on Sunday when we come together. But they were not. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says to us that we should not neglect meeting together. Christians are supposed to meet together. And then it goes on and says that when we do come together, we should consider how to stir up one another to love. And to good works. And that we should be encouraging one another. That's the purpose of our fellowship when we assemble together. But then we have this description about the earliest church in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then this description in verses 44 through 47 and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing 
the proceeds to all as all had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's a description of what our assemblies should be. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is a directive of what our assemblies should be. And Paul is telling this church in Corinth, that is not what's happening when you come together. So that is his sharp critique. There were big problems in this church when they came together. So next, Paul gets more specific about the problem. So in verses 18 and 19, the problem, it's revealed. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Let's take this a phrase at a time. He says, in the first place when you come together as a church. This is only the first problem. There are several problems when the Corinthians come together. In fact, the next few chapters, all the way through chapter 14, are, are bringing light to the mess that is their public meetings. Aggravated by lack of humility in that local church, lack of love for one another, and a lack of order. But the first problem, that's what he's addressing here in this chapter. So in the first place, when you come together as a church, and now here is Paul's assessment of their assembly, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. The reports were probably exaggerated by the time they got to Paul's ears. That's usually what happens when things get passed along. But nevertheless, Paul says, I believe it. To some extent, I believe it. I believe it in part. And this word for division, it means a tear or a crack. This is what Paul is saying. When you gather together for fellowship and worship, there are obvious tears through your congregation. When you all get in a room together to worship and to fellowship, it becomes obvious when you come together publicly that there are cracks right in the middle of your congregation and it is dividing you. We knew that there were divisions in this church. Paul first brought it up way back in chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now look and see the surprising thing that Paul says in verse 19. And this really stumped me this week. What Paul says here in verse 19, he, he writes, and let me read it in context. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And here's the statement that puzzled me. For there must be 
factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul is saying that division in churches is inevitable. There must be factions among you. So division or factions in churches, that is something, it's a reality, he's saying. It's only a matter of time. That is inevitable. And he's saying that when it does happen, it serves a purpose. That's that phrase, in order that. So when there are factions and when there are divisions amongst Christians, it actually serves a purpose. And he says, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I don't think Paul is saying division is a good thing. Division in churches is not a good thing. It's never a good thing. And in fact, Paul is going to work to instruct them out of these divisions. But that said, God has a redeeming purpose even in division. And that's the point that he's making. What the devil means for evil, God means for good. God uses division to sift his church. Division sometimes, and I believe this is the point Paul is making here, division sometimes makes clear who the truly converted are. Division sometimes makes clear who the genuine believers are. Often, not always, there is a right side and a wrong side of division. Often, not always, but often when there is division amongst Christians, when there is division in a local church, there is a right side of that division. And there's also a wrong side of division. Think about that congregation in Northampton that expelled Jonathan Edwards. Only 10% were for him, the other 90%. That's a, that's a split. That's a totally uneven split. We could look back now from a historical perspective and say there was a wrong side and a right side of that division. And 90% were on the wrong side. 10% were on the right side. Look at the Reformation. That is a sharp division on which there was a wrong side and there was a right side. The genuine believers in this case are likely those who are reporting the divisions to Paul. Some care about the divisions and, and others apparently don't care about the divisions. The divisions will see the where we're causing some to be discriminated against wrongly. It is likely those who were discriminated against, who were the obvious and genuine believers. Everyone in that church professed faith, but not everyone showed fruit of faith. And division was exposing that in Corinth. So when you have a local church that's made up of committed members, all those committed members are, of course, they should be professing to be Christians. But what happens in churches sometimes is a division or factions. And one of the purposes through that is those who are not actually believers end up exposed. 
what they believe is wrong. What they're thinking is wrong. What they're doing is wrong. And sometimes that's the fruit of unbelief. So Paul makes note of that. The Princeton theologian Charles Hodge hit the nail on the head when he wrote this. This is the reason why Paul believed what he had heard. He knew that such things must happen and that God has a wise purpose in permitting them. By the prevalence of disorders and other evils in the church, God puts his people to the test. They are tried as gold in the furnace and their genuineness is made to appear. It is a great consolation to know that dissensions, whether in the church or in the state, are not fortuitous, but are ordered by the providence of God and are designed as storms for the purpose of purification. So Paul reveals the problem, and it is some sort of division in this church. Now let's move on to verses 20 through 22, where Paul illustrates the problem. And he illustrates the problem by giving a concrete example of how and where this division is showing up. And so through this illustration, he clarifies what the division is. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That's going to be his illustration. This division, it's showing up when you come together. And more specifically, it's showing up when you come together and you take the Lord's Supper. In fact, it's so bad that you're not even taking the Lord's Supper. Whatever you're doing, he's saying, it's not the Lord's Supper. So that's where the division was showing up in this church. And So let me pause for just a, a minute because communion in Corinth, it looked very different than the way communion usually looks in churches today. So my understanding, as best I know, is that they would come together on the first day of the week on Sunday and, and they would worship together. It would be sort of chaotic. And we're going to see that in future chapters. When the Corinthians got together every week to worship, it was there was not a lot of order to things. And it's one of the things that Paul is going to address. But they would come together and worship. And then they would sit down and they would share a big meal together. And that big meal that they would share together would then culminate or it would conclude with a special eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper. It'd be at the conclusion of this large meal. So keep that in mind. That's very different than how we do communion. But that's what they were doing when they took communion. So verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Okay, it would be wine. It wouldn't be grape juice. That's a whole other discussion. Church has not been using grape juice for very long. And, and we do here, and we have some reasons, and I'm not sure they're good reasons. But historically, 
right? As it was on the night Jesus was betrayed in that first supper, it was, it was wine. So I gave you the context because most of you are trying to figure out how you could possibly, right, come forward and eat so much bread that, like, you're full and there's not any for anyone else and how you could drink enough cups, even if there was wine in these little cups, to get drunk. So they had a meal together. Okay, they shared this big meal together. And then at the end of that meal, that's when they would take the Lord's Supper. And so those divisions, that's where they're showing up. And what we see is they were economic divisions. Different than some other divisions that he's already pointed out to this church. But these were economic divisions. So most likely, as would be the custom during a meal, the poor would serve the wealthy. And even in the church, that was probably still taking place. The poor would serve the wealthy. That's how it would work in society. And then apparently what was happening is by the time the poor were done serving the wealthy at the table, they knew enough to know that the poor needed to then be invited to the table. They didn't exclude them. But the problem is, by the time the poor were done serving the wealthy in this church, by the time they got to the table, the wealthy were drunk. And there was not enough food to feed the poor. And then, as they joined them at the conclusion of this meal, and there was not enough food, and some were drunk, they would take the Lord's Supper together. That is terrible. That is why Paul says, that this is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. This is not something I approve of. This is not something God would commend you in. The very brother of Jesus, James, he writes about this in his letter. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Communion, if you've been here, we've looked at this in the past few weeks. Communion is supposed to unify the church. If at any point in our coming together we are unified, it is when we take communion. As the one body of Christ, the one body of Christ comes together to commune with the head of that body, Jesus Christ. This unity is what 1 Corinthians 10, 17 is getting at when it says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. But in Corinth, Rather than being a unifying part of their worship, communion had become an opportunity to divide and had been an opportunity to mistreat one another. As Richard Pratt says, they were turning communion inside out. So Paul 
rightly says this in verse 22. What? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Paul is saying, if you want to eat and drink with certain people, that's fine. Don't you have homes that you can do that in? If there are certain people who are part of your church family that you get along with even better than others and you have even more of a connection with than others and maybe even more in common with than others and you find that you have a, an even a special camaraderie within the church of God, that's fine, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you have one another into your houses and you eat and drink, that's just fine. But when you come together, you are one body, don't forget. You are all members of this church. This is the most wonderful thing, by the way, or that may be an overstatement. This is one of the most wonderful things about being a member of a church. Okay, just about everything else that you do in life, you choose the people that you surround yourself with. And the people that you surround yourself with, that you run with, that you play with, that you entertain with, that you spend time with, they usually, they're just like you, right? They look like you. They're the same life stage as you. They sound like you. You have a lot in common. But when you become a member of a church, you have no control, really, of who God brings in and then calls you to commit yourself to and to love and to love those who are a part of your household of faith even more, Galatians says, than you love those who are not a part of your household of faith. So here I have people outside of my church that I have more in common with and community comes more naturally and fellowship is more comfortable and yet I'm to love these in my household of faith even more than I love them practically. So we're unified. We are united as a church. So Paul says, shame on you. Shame on you for dividing up on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, and discriminating against the poor. Your hearts are coming out here. Your thoughts are coming out here. Your judgments and what you think and who's better than who and who deserves more than who. That's all coming out when you come together and you take the Lord's Supper. And Paul's criticism is scathing. It's despicable. What you're doing doesn't even resemble the Lord's Supper anymore. So our last heading, the problem addressed which Paul does for the rest of the chapter. It is his response to this problem. But again, we'll just look at the first part of his response. It's found in the next five verses. So verse 22. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And now Paul draws their attention to the very first Lord's Supper. That's where he goes now, as if to say, this is how you should administer the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is wrong. 
This is how it should be done. Verse 23. Let's read through verse 26 and then we'll take our time with it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul takes them back to the beginning. He takes them back to the night that Jesus Christ himself administered this first supper. And he explains what this meal should be about and how it should be done. And if they'll follow his example here, Christ's example, Paul knows there is no way they will end up dividing and discriminating against one another. So in conclusion, I'd like to show you now five directions in this description that Paul gives of the Lord's Supper. So he's responding to the problem. He's addressing the problem. And in these verses, there are five directions that he's going to give the Corinthians. Good for them. And these are, of course, good for us. So number one, in the Lord's Supper, we are to see. We're to see something with our eyes. Christian, we should see the broken bread. We should see the poured cups. We are to see one another. We're taking this supper together as a church, as the body of Christ, especially the way we take communion here. You can't help but see and even interact with one another. We are in communion to see. We are to see Christ's church. We are to see those whom he has purchased by his blood. So number one, we are to see. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when we take communion, we should not primarily see ethnicity or life stage or gender or economic status or political affiliation, we should fight to see first the body of Christ purchased by Him. And this that unifies all of us, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your status is, no matter where you've come from, we all stand together as believers being those whom Christ has purchased. And with our eyes, we see that when we take the Lord's Supper. Number two, we are to hear. Christian, 
We should hear what Paul has said. We should hear what Jesus said on this night he was betrayed. We should hear that the bread is a symbol of the body of Christ, which has been given for each of us and all of us Christians. Yes, it has been given for you, Christian. And there's nothing wrong with individualizing that. But do not forget, His body was not just given for you, it was given, Christians, for us. For each of us. For all of us. How could one of us consider ourselves better than another in light of that? How could we judge one another? How could we secretly look down on one another? We know better than to do that publicly or openly. But in our hearts. We've had 2,000 years to not discriminate publicly. But often, don't we do this in our hearts? We look down our noses at others. We judge what other Christians do. We judge what other Christians say. We judge what other Christians wear. We judge how other Christians parent. We judge what other Christians do in their free time. Because it's different than what we would do. It's not what we would say. It's not how we think. It's not sin. It's maybe different. And we think we're better at the end of the day. It feels good to feel better. It feels good to feel like you know something that others don't. It feels good to feel like you've nailed something that other people are failing at. Makes us proud. Gives us a confidence in ourselves. And it's anti-gospel. It's not good for us. So we hear and are reminded that this bread is a symbol of the body of Christ, which has been given for each of us and all of us. We should hear that the cup is a symbol of the blood of Christ, which has also been given for each of us and all of us. So number two, we are to hear. And number three, we are to take and eat. We take and eat. Christian, we should take and eat this bread and cup together. And this is why we wait. This is not an individual thing. This is a together thing. And so we take and eat the cup and the bread together because we are the one body of Christ. And we are nourished and we are strengthened by Him. So for anyone, you can imagine this in, in Corinth, for anyone to go without would be for someone to be denied the spiritual nourishment and strength that is received in the Lord's Supper. And none of us should be denied that as Christians. We take and we eat together. And we are strengthened by Christ as we take hold of Him by faith. And we are nourished and held together and sustained and kept together and kept healthy, and kept secure, and made better and more mature as we are nourished 
by Jesus Christ. And as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are taking in, by faith, Jesus Christ. We are admitting that I need you, Jesus. And when we do that together, we are saying, we need you, Jesus. John 6, 55, we believe when Jesus said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. This is the gospel. What's going to happen to my body and what's going to happen to my blood is exactly what you need. And you need it every moment of every day. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. What do you see when in a few minutes people around you will get up and take the Lord's Supper? What, what do you hear? Well, I hope you see and we hope you hear the gospel, the good news. The good news that, that Jesus once proclaimed to you. And that is the good news that Jesus came to reconcile sinners to God. That every single one of us as human beings ever since Genesis chapter 3 has something very sad in common. And what we have in common is we are by nature rebels against God. And we, the Bible puts it like this, we go our own way. And it is not in our heart to submit to God. It is not in our heart to love God. It is not in our heart to put God before all other things. It is in our heart to put ourselves before all other things. It is in our heart to please ourselves over God. It is in our heart to go our own way. And we do, time and time and time again. And God is a good God and a just God. And his word says in Hebrews 9.27 that every man, every woman is destined to die once and then to face judgment. As sinners, we will stand before God in judgment. And what our sin deserves is to be cast away from God and to be punished and to suffer forever and ever alienated from him and all things good. But the good news that Jesus once proclaimed is that he came and he lived perfectly and he willingly died. He willingly died by taking the sin of the world and being punished in the place of those sinners. So that sinners like you and me, if we would turn to Jesus, if we would believe this gospel, and then do what of course we would do if we believe this gospel, and that is to repent and turn from our sin and to take hold of him, to love him, and to follow him, then the promise of the gospel is that we would be forgiven of our sin. We would be washed clean. We would be redeemed. We would be reconciled to God to live with him forever. So if you're here and you are not a Christian, then you should not take and eat at the Lord's Supper. You should hear and believe. You should hear and believe the gospel. 
and you should repent and put your faith, that means your trust, in Jesus and nothing and no one else, especially not and including yourself. But Christians, we will take and eat because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Number four, we are to remember, we are to remember, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. We should remember Christ. We should not zone out when we take the Lord's Supper. We should fight distraction when we take the Lord's Supper. To remember means to engage your mind. It means that we should be thoughtful. It means that we should think and we should be remembering the gospel. And finally, number five, we are to proclaim. Verse 26, Paul said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Christian, we are to proclaim during the Lord's Supper, to proclaim to one another. That's who we proclaim to. It is this toast. We proclaim to one another, Jesus is enough. Jesus is all we need. He is everything we need. He has supplied everything we need in Him. We are forgiven. We have been made new creations. The old is what we were, and we have been cleansed, and we have been made new. We have been given hope. We have been given peace. We have been given true joy. We have been given a Savior. We have been given a Lord. We have been given the greatest treasure. We proclaim this to one another. That Jesus is our Lord, our Savior, our treasure. That's what Paul wants us to do during the Lord's Supper. It's what he wanted the Corinthians to do during the Lord's Supper. Seeing and hearing and taking and eating and remembering and proclaiming. It's what Christ wants us to do during the Lord's Supper. And in doing that, we demonstrate our unity with Christ and our unity with one another. So as we take communion today, if you are visiting with us, if it's not already clear, you're invited to take communion with us only if you are a believer, you are a Christian, you have been baptized, you have confessed your sin, you have placed your trust for salvation in the work of Christ, and you are a part of His church actively. You're a committed member of a church, whether it's this or another that preaches the same gospel that you have heard here today. If that describes you, we're so glad that you are here and you're welcome to take communion with us. We have leaders up front who will serve you. And then, and we know why we do this, hold on to the bread and hold on to the juice, return to your seat and wait where we will take it together as the body of Christ. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for speaking to us and to our hearts through your word today. We pray that your word would do a good work in us. God, that you'd convict us of sin. That you would encourage us in our despair. That you would strengthen us. That you would nourish us. That you would, by your word and spirit, minister to us and be all that we need. We pray now for this time as we remember and proclaim the death of your son that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.